And so today we're going to look at one of the ways we can partner with the healing work of Jesus in our lives, kind of looking at one way we can respond to Jesus. So why don't we just pause again and let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we've been praying for your spirit to come. Would your spirit indeed come and would you speak to each of us in our hearts that we might know that you're near, we might know that you care, and you might lead us into your very good ways. We pray for your healing presence in the life of our church in these coming weeks, we pray. We want what you want to give. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week, uh, Angel and I attended a pastors and spouse conference at Barnabas Landing over on Keats Island, one of our favorite places in the world to go. And the theme was a good theme. The theme was joy. And our presenter during our, our talk, one, um, when we were uh, in one of our sessions, asked us to go out into breakout groups, you know, pair up with another pastor couple, and ask the question of what is it that brings you joy in your life? What's a joy bringer? And then ask the other question, what is that which steals joy? What is a joy thief to you? It's actually a great question for you to ask yourself at some point. Not now, not here, but later. Hold that, park that question. But uh, one of the pastors in our group, she, she was just so honest and said that her biggest joy thief was comparison and envy. Comparing her life, her ministry, her pastoral work uh, against other pastors, other churches, other ministries. She found that that always was dogging her, whether she was measuring up in that work or not. And, and it's interesting, uh, we shared that with the larger group. Later, we were asked to share what our groups had, had talked about, and there were just all these pastors nodding heads all around the room. We all struggle with that. And yes, comparison does steal joy. Agreed? We could have that sense, right? We, uh, we look at other people's lives, and doesn't it seem like just the grass is greener over there, <laughs> right, in their yard? Uh, both literally and figuratively in my case, their grass is greener. There's always those that look just a little bit more together than we look and than we feel. They seem to have all the luck. Good things kind of just go their, their way. And the question is, just how true is that? It's not very true, is it? I like the quote from Samuel L. Johnson, a poet from the 17th century, who shared this wisdom. He said, all envy would be extinguished if it were universally known that there are none to be envied. And as I reflect on this insight that no one is to be envied and then observe the lives of real people that I know, I'm in this privileged position as pastor, I get to see the real circumstances and experiences of people. And there are a lot of people who look like their life is going well on the outside, but it's just not going so well on the inside. It, every, almost everyone has kind of some sorrow or, or burden that they're carrying. You know, a person may struggle with anxiety or depression, or they may be uh, in a difficult relationship with their parents or a family member, or have ongoing conflict with a work colleague, or they may struggle with feeling worthy, or or have confusion over their identity, any number of struggles that people carry. 
Yeah, N.T. Wright, uh, many of you know, is a very respected theologian. He once described how he was part of a very small church in England, and, and, and kind of a country village church. And on a typical Sunday, there'd, there'd be 10 or 15 people that gathered. I love the fact that N.T. Wright, who many of us know as one of the, the, the most well-known, famous theologians around the world, attended this like country church. Tom, Tom Wright was in like his 60s at the time, and he said he was like the youngest member of that church. He was like, he was like their youth group. But he said this about that church. He said, if you look at these English people who are smartly dressed and very warm people, looking at their outward appearance, you would think they didn't have a problem in the world, but every one of them carries a secret sorrow. Even if you've been dealt with what looks like one of the best hands in life, right? There are parts of each of us that we don't like. Uh, Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist and author, and he spoke recently at the Lang Lectures at Regent College. And, and he was talking about how all of us, each of us, have not only kind of complex family systems, a family system is, is how our families interrelate and affect one another in the family context. Um, we also have internal kind of family systems within us, and it means that we're all made up of these many different parts. There are parts of us that are angry. There are parts of us that are funny. There are parts of us that are funny and angry at the same time. <laughs> There's the parts of us that are shy or insecure. There's the part of us that is sad or lonely. And all these are parts of who we are. There's a, a part of us who is competent in some area, whether it be relationship or art or music or, or maybe some field of work or a hobby of some kind. Thompson also went on to say, he said, there are also parts of us that we'd rather be dead than have them in the room. Parts of us we want to get rid of. Parts of us we're ashamed of. And we don't want to hear from them, and so what do we do? We shut them out. And this morning, I want us to consider that those are the very parts that Jesus came for. He came to heal those very parts of us. What if we didn't shut them out? Because I, I believe it's Jesus' mission to take our disintegrated parts, all the broken bits of us, and heal them and bring them into an integrated whole. You know, years ago I had a friend who wrote a book on this, and he literally described walking with Jesus as a journey of walking towards wholeness. Wholeness being, uh, I, I think, uh, a, a, a great word that encompasses all that we might say salvation would include. I think our text from Hebrews has some clues about how we might think about this and respond to this work of Jesus. Verse 14 offers this conclusion. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. A little background here that the writer of Hebrews is speaking to followers of Jesus who just literally had a very tough go. They'd suffered, they'd gone through difficult days, they've struggled, and they're actually tempted to give up on faith and give up on God because of their suffering, because of the difficulties. And some of those difficulties were difficulties because they'd chosen to follow Jesus. 
So the author is urging these Christians to not give up, don't quit, keep the faith. By the way, that kind of message is a message for our day. You need to hear this. I need to hear this. To not quit, to hold firm, to keep going, to keep our eyes on Jesus, to not quit. I think we live in a day where faith seems increasingly challenging in our culture. I don't know if it ever was popular to be a Christian in Canada, but it is not popular to be a Christian now. It's a little bit of the opposite, right? And so we need to be reminded of why we believe why we believe. We need to be reminded of how worth it Jesus is, how much better Jesus is. You can actually make a, a case that the whole message of the gospel of the, the book of Hebrews is don't quit because Jesus is better than anything else there. He beats the competition hands down. Part of why I do church, part of why I urge you to do church is because we need reminding. We need to be encouraging one another in this journey to hold firm in our faith. So what's uh, the author's rationale for holding firm? Uh, author of Hebrews points us to the Son, to Jesus, our great high priest, who has ascended into heaven. And, and we're told in other scriptures that when Jesus went up, he ascended from his first followers who were gathered around him. He was giving them kind of final words, and he literally started to rise in their eyes. I can't imagine that moment. That he would go, and, and, and we're told he would sit on a throne to the right hand of God the Father. Today is Pentecost. Uh, we celebrate, as we've mentioned, the coming of the Spirit. But last week, we actually, kind of in a quieter way, celebrated the ascension. Nobody celebrates the ascension in a big way, and that should change, probably, because it actually means a lot. I, at least Pastor Kevin really thinks we should, like, make a big splash of Ascension Sunday. Um, so why does the ascension of Jesus matter to us? This could be a very long, uh, theologically complex and intense answer, but most simply, Christ's rising to sit at the right hand of the Father means that in heaven, there is one who is sitting on the throne, as we're told in Romans chapter 8, that is in this moment praying for and interceding for his people, for you and for me. It's, it's really quite something. And I mention this because it's actually what a priest does. Our text mentions this great high priest. Uh, the word intercede is defined as someone who intervenes on behalf of another, an intervener. They're kind of a go-between. So Jesus, our great high priest, is intervening on our behalf. He's with the, the Father in this moment. And what is he doing? He's thinking thoughts about you right now. In this very space, he's, he's praying for you. He's blessing you. And he doesn't just do this when you're at church in your most presentable. He's doing this always in every moment of every day. A couple of weeks ago, we were at uh, our friend's son's play, part of a theater club, and they put on Oliver Twist, and it was really, really good. Any kid's performance, you got to love it doesn't matter how flawed it is, you can't help but give a standing ovation at the end. I mean, just love seeing kids perform. But it is certainly never, per you know, perfect, right? I've often talked to some that 
a middle, uh, you know, a middle school band concert would, you know, an unending middle school band concert would be the idea of hell for me. People like, uh, that would be not good. Uh, it kind of grates on your soul. I'm just saying. Um, I know, terrible. And, and in this play, you see some of these kids, and some of the kids have real talent, and some of these kids should find another career. Like, like they should actually look for something and develop a, you know, go to school, you know, or do, that's, I'm just saying. I'm not going to comment on my son's friend. But when my son's friend, when his son, my friend's son, I should say, when he came onto the stage and it was his turn to perform, I looked at my friend. And he was looking at his son. And there was this look in his face that said, like, that's my boy. That's my boy. And you could just, he was bursting with pride. He looks at me, I look at him. He's like, oh, it was so good. It was so good. And that's the picture I have of Jesus interceding for us. I think it's what Jesus does, interceding on the throne to the Father. He's looking at us and he's saying to the Father, he's saying, look at my boy. Look at my girl. You see what they're up to? Isn't that great? I mean, think of uh, actually Job. You remember Job? Uh, Old Testament character, and, and we hear about this dialogue happening in, in, in heaven, and what does the Father say about Job? Have you seen my son Job? Like, isn't he fantastic? I love it. But also he's on a throne. Jesus is on a throne where a king rules. And so Jesus, during his life, who was always talking about this coming kingdom where his kingdom would come, and it, was, it has come near in him. Um, and, and, and so I believe there's, uh, he's there. He's on the throne, ruling over all things in heaven and earth, and also directing the coming of his kingdom so that up there would come down here. And I mean, he asked us to pray that, didn't he? Uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Which means, as N.T. Wright explains, that to embrace the ascension is to heave a sigh of relief, to give up the struggle to be God, and with it, with it the inevitable despair at our constant failure, and in, to enjoy our status as creatures, image-bearing creatures, but creatures nonetheless. In other words, with Jesus on the throne, I do not need to be. I, I don't need to be in charge. Get this. The buck stops with somebody else. <laughs> Some of you have lived your life with the idea that the buck stops with you. Right? Some of you have carried that your whole life. You just feel like this, this weight of responsibility for your life. And, and actually, you're meant to live with somebody else being in charge of your life. Someone else is meant to be on the throne, not you. What a relief. What a gift. But the other gift in Jesus' ascension is that when he ascended... He took our humanity with him. You see, when Jesus came, we're told that it was God. He was God in the flesh who moved into the neighborhood. And he fully entered into our humanity. He started as a baby and an infant and a child. We're talking burps and spit-ups and diapers. We're talking scraped knees. We're talking bad dream. You're waking up in the night needing to be comforted by a parent because of a bad dream. And then Jesus became a teenager. Can you imagine? 
Folks, I don't want to rock your boat too much here, but Jesus went through puberty, right? He had a 14-year-old's brain for a time, which, trust me, I've seen it close up. It's not a good, a good thing. In, in, in his humanity, I, I just want to say this. Jesus was not, was not God pretending to be human. He was fully human. He fully, fully, entirely experienced our humanity. Think about the accounts in the Gospels where we learn that Jesus experienced hunger or Jesus was weary or tired. There's a scene in The Chosen, the, the, the film series about Jesus, where Jesus has been healing all day, and, and uh, he, he comes away from those experiences of healing these individuals, and he's just exhausted and weary to the bone. That, that helped my imagination, knowing that Jesus could be so tired he would have not another word that he could give or utter. Think about how he wept at the death of a friend, like we would weep. How he needed friends. Like, like in his garden moments, he was, come with me, I need you. I need you to pray with me. Or how he agonized in great depression and desperation in the garden. And remarkably, we're told that when he rose from the dead, he still had scars. In fact, I heard about a song this week uh, called Scars in Heaven, that Jesus took his scars with him. We have a scarred Lord and ruler sitting on the throne. So friends, I want to tell you, sitting on the throne is one who knows. Verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, Yet he did not sin. He's talking about Jesus, the priest. Tempted like you, tempted like me, just as we are. And, and the truth is we actually need a priest. We, we all need a priest. In our brokenness, in our lostness, we actually need somebody to intervene on our behalf. But we don't need a priest who's unable to relate to what we have gone through or how it's like to live in this world. I think the key word in that text is sympathize. Jesus lived it. He knows it so he can sympathize with our weakness. And so when Jesus talks to the Father about you, I want to tell you this, he knows of what he speaks. There's, there's absolutely no temptation you can wrestle with. There is no pain that you can suffer or bear. There's no dark, lonely path that you can walk that he has not walked before. The author of Hebrews continues, he says, because you have a great high priest like this, this is how you should respond. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In, in other words, because we have Jesus, who so understands us and sympathizes with us, this means we do not have to come to God. We don't need to come to God timidly or fearfully. We can come and approach God freely with confidence. You know, if you're not convinced, notice what the throne is called, what, what God's throne. It's not um, a throne laden with swords like you might see in Game of Thrones. You know, it's not the throne 
of judgment and damnation. It's not the throne of power. What is it called? The throne of grace. He chose that word for a reason. Grace is so unlike those other qualities. It's not coercive. It's good. God's grace is is God's undeserved favor towards us. His mercy towards us. You know, last week when we were at this pastor's gathering, we were having lunch one day together. We had a bunch of other pastor couples at our table, and there was an older pastor there. He was kind of like harping on our culture. Somebody said something. I like triggered this guy, and he just went off. And he was talking about those inside the church and those outside the church. Inside the church, in his estimation, people were like not measuring up, like just not living like they should live. And uh, he went off on that for a while. And then he, then he's like got off on those outside the church. And he says, well, they're so lost. And it was a very much us kind of them. And the us is a very, very small group. And uh, the them is a very, the lost masses in the world. And to be fair, uh, I found myself getting heated as I'm listening to this guy. And I should have probably shut my mouth. But I, I'm like, dude. I don't see that in Jesus at all. Where's the Jesus in this? Because I didn't see Jesus in anything of what he was describing as he's talking about broken sinners, people who are actually struggling, those who, have, who, who are lost or, or haven't got it figured out or are, are confused. I didn't hear an ounce of grace towards outsiders or even insiders for that matter. And that's just not what we see in Jesus. We see in Jesus this extravagant, Radical hospitality to broken people. Isn't this what we've been seeing in in the Gospel of Matthew? Just again and again, story after story, we see Jesus' persistent, even defiant love towards tax collectors and sinners, towards outsiders, towards a broken Samaritan woman at a well as Angel talked about a couple weeks ago. Here's the thing. Now that Jesus is ascended and on the throne, it's not like he's suddenly insulated from all that, all that our humanity and our brokenness. This same Jesus still welcomes real broken people into his presence with that extravagant, insane kind of love. Amen? Which means Jesus is absolutely the one person who is safe for us to come to as we are. We actually can come to him exactly as we are. You don't have a person in your life that is like this. Sorry to say, married couples, you, there's things you keep from your spouse. There's that broken part of you that, that that's off. You don't even hardly look at it yourself, let alone share it with anybody else. Jesus is the one person you can come to and be assured that he will receive you. We don't need to worry about reputation management with Jesus. Isn't that great? We don't have to like, be always thinking about how we can impress him somehow. We don't have to hold it together. We don't have to pretend. We can be real with him. We can come to his throne of grace with all of our parts, even the parts we'd rather be dead than be in the same room with. And we can be assured of his mercy and grace. Now, I want to say all this because this is so important if we are going to receive Christ's healing and become whole in our lives. 
Because perhaps one of the greatest obstacles to our healing is our pretending. <laughs> pretending we're okay when we're not okay. Most of us are pretty good at pretending, actually. We, like, I think we wear kind of masks kind of all the time. We, we learn to hide, right? Most of us get really good at what Dallas Willard called impression management, seeking to live our lives, thinking about, you know, managing the impressions others have of us. We do it with others, and I would say we do it with God, and maybe more significantly, we do this with ourselves. We, we actually uh, keep things from ourselves. We actually don't want to face certain things about ourselves, right? We, we can sometimes find ourselves squashing down those painful bits or those shameful bits. Common strategy for many, we, we get busy or we avoid quiet. Escapist behaviors, binge Netflix. Uh, there's multiple. We had, we had escapist behaviors before Netflix. It's just a chosen favorite for many in our day. Last week, Angel and I watched a new documentary uh, on Michael J. Fox's life and journey called Still. Has anybody seen it? It's really quite profound. Many of you know of Fox. He's a local boy. He grew up in Burnaby and went to superstardom when he got cast in Family Ties a show that I watched with my family growing up. And then he went on to super, superstardom when, uh, what's the film? Back to the Future. You guys know Michael J. Fox. And he wasn't even out of his 20s. He was like 28 or something like that when Michael learned that he had Parkinson's disease. And he didn't know at all how to deal with that. He tells how he came out of an appointment with his doctor and, and, and just having received this diagnosis, and the doctor said, you know, this is one you don't win. This is a game you do not win. And Michael J. Fox said, I, I was used to winning. So Michael did two things. Didn't tell anybody. He kept it a secret. And to help with that, he, he took pills to mask the symptoms. Second thing he did was he drank alcohol in order to numb the pain. He talked about alcohol, how it just ravaged his life, how the impact it had on his family and his young, young children at the time. And he went on to overcome his addiction. Listen to his description of overcoming alcoholism and facing the pain. He said, it was like having a knife fight in a closet. It wasn't long after that that Michael went on to very courageously confess his disease to the world. And following that, the Michael J. Fox Foundation has brought great light and attention to this terrible disease, and they have raised something like a billion and a half dollars to fund research into Parkinson's. But this instinct to run and hide from our pain and our brokenness runs real deep. It, folks, it just goes back to the garden. We're talking Adam and Eve days. After they rebelled from God, they suddenly knew. What, what did they knew? What did they know? They knew they were naked and they were ashamed. They started the cover-up. They, they began hiding from God. They, this is, I think, instinctive in all of us. That's how deep it runs. Talking about this again, Dr. Kurt Thompson makes this observation that we are the only animals that need clothing to survive. Some of you clothe your animals. Uh, i got to say, that's just weird. You know, you got the, those dog sweaters and so on, cat sweaters. Seriously. 
Uh, they don't like it, and neither does the rest of the world. You might, I'm going to shut up now, sorry. See, I didn't say anything bad about cats. I just, I just told you. Thank you. Thompson goes on to say, he says, we walk around thinking that we are going to choose to be vulnerable. He says, that's not an option. We are vulnerable creatures. The question is, in what way am I going to allow God to use my vulnerability as a way to create and become whole? Isn't that powerful? How am I going to allow God to use my vulnerability as a way to create and become whole? All this leads to the question I want to ask you this morning. Will you be vulnerable with God? In the days you have life on this earth, will you do more to protect and cover up and to hide, or will you put more of your energy into opening up more and more of your life to be present to God as you are? It's, it's a choice I think we all have. We, we can actually continue on. I, I think... Plan A, we, we, we are well-versed in that. Um, I know I'm quite gifted in hiding. We, it was down in Portland a few weeks ago at a past, another pastor's conference. And uh, it's sometimes good for pastors to get away and to go to somebody else who's doing what I'm doing to you this morning. And um, God just uh, uh, broke through my hiding that morning. It, like... The speaker spoke a, a prophetic word, a word from God for me. And uh, I found myself at the front um, responding. And I was just standing there praying. And uh, they said a, a prayer person would come and lay their hands on me. And a prayer person came and land, laid their hand on me. And they prayed such a prayer that uh, it was exactly what I was feeling. It, it, they described a picture that they saw that was exactly what I was feeling. And I felt unmasked, actually. And I began to weep and weep and weep and poured this out, kind of poured out this. I, I realized that I'd, I'd been putting for quite a long time a, a lot of energy into hiding that, like pretending that that was something. And I wonder for you, I wonder, like, like man, this is such a, a well-practiced trail for us. It's like we need a breakthrough in vulnerability with God. It's like we need God to like intervene for us. And he did. Jesus has done this. He's our, our great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Right now he's praying and interceding in this moment for you. He's praying for breakthrough. He's praying that you will come alive in him in ways that have been dead. He'll, he's praying that you will... Um, Stop being in charge of your life and allow him to, to, to guide and to lead. He's praying that you would give him access to those broken parts and those shameful parts so that you might be touched by his hand and that he might bring healing to you. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. What an amazing gift.